Our text this morning is 1 Samuel chapter 3. At the end of chapter 2, you'll recall that a man of God, this unnamed prophet, comes and he pronounces a very fierce judgment on the house of Eli for their abuse of the priesthood. And it's with that dark backdrop that the call of Samuel comes in our text. And we'll look at the text under three headings. They're there on the back inside page of the bulletin. The call of Samuel, the word of the Lord, and the young prophet. So first then, the call of Samuel. Verse 1 tells us that the young man Samuel was ministering to the Lord under Eli. Now, we're only at the beginning of chapter 3 in this book. This is the fifth, fifth notice of Samuel's growth and or his ministering to the Lord in the book to this point. And so there's a vital lesson here. I sketched it a little bit last week, but especially if you're a younger person, right? And it's simply that the remedy, the remedy for God's judgment on the corruption of the church sometimes or even often comes in the form of those who in the middle of that corruption faithfully serve the Lord in the church. You know, it's remarkable, even corrupt churches, places where, as the end of verse 1 says, the word of the Lord is rare, even corrupt churches can, by God's grace, provide the training and the mentorship needed for a future generation of leadership. Right? As we said last week, God often raises the future of the church up out of the ruins of the church. Right? Century after century, country after country, this happens. Right? When everyone's writing the obituary of the church, something emerges from the ashes. Notice, Samuel ministered to the Lord under Eli. Let me put this differently. Samuel ministered to the Lord under the doomed and accursed line of priests descending from Eli. Samuel ministered to the Lord under the one against whom the prophetic word had already come in judgment. But notice that the word of God was rare. It wasn't completely absent because Some years earlier, the man of God pronounced the judgment on Eli's house, but it was very, very rare. There were not many visions, we're told, in Israel. This notice is a dreadful thing. The book of Proverbs says, without vision, and by that it doesn't mean a plan or a vision statement. It means a prophetic word. Without a prophetic word, the people perish. What has happened is that God himself has gone to ground in Israel. God hides himself. No one can read the prophets and the Psalms and not be struck by this. Frankly, no one can read the newspaper and not be struck by this. He hides himself and the absence is felt. And part of the church's calling is to look right into that darkness and ask some hard questions. This hiding 
is a sign of judgment. It's a terrible thing. Life without the speech, without the word, without the wisdom of God is an impoverished life. It's a vacant life. Even if it appears otherwise. We are worded creatures, created by the word and sustained by the word and made in the image of the word, given the gift of language and words. We must have God talk to us. And so it's ominous, ominous, that the word of God was rare. You know, at your funeral, you should aspire to have someone stand up and say, The word of God was everything to them. Of course, they would have had the Torah. But apparently they had no living prophetic proclamation of the word. In this situation, the prophet Amos calls a famine. Right? He speaks of a famine on the land. Not, not, he says, a famine of bread or water. There's enough food to eat, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. This is always felt sharply in Israel's history. If you read Psalm 74, there's this, it's this cry of anguish over the destruction of the temple and the exile of the people. And the psalm says, we do not see any signs. There is no longer any prophet There is none among us who knows how long. How long do we have to sit here in this silence? Pretending that everything is okay. When the word of the Lord or the word of God is rare, there's nothing one can do. There's no thing. There's no set of activities. There's nothing that can be manufactured, right, to replace this absence. To cause life to flourish. You can bet that in Israel, there was no absence of religious activity. Politics and and power struggles weren't rare in Israel. Right? The chaos and the bustle of life, that wasn't rare. Life carries on. The cacophony of all kinds of noisy voices, that wasn't rare. But this is the central storyline, the big thing, the grand thing, the thing that is absent. It's much the same in our day, right? The word of God is the thing which is filtered out of every frame of our public life. Often filtered out of every frame or many frames in our private lives. It is the thing that is absent. In our public discourse. Same thing in Israel's life. The word of God's not being sounded forth. There were not many visions. And verse 2 tells us that Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim, so dim that he couldn't see, was lying down in his own place. Notice that the text moves from a lack of visions to Eli's lack of vision. Surely then, his his dimming eyesight is a kind of sign. It's a kind of sacrament of a lack of spiritual discernment in the priesthood and in the nation. There are no visions, 
the high priest's eyes are bad. In fact, the text goes on to say that the lamp of God has, had not yet gone out. And this is a reference to the lampstand that would be in the holy place and was to be kept burning by the priests. But it would dim as the night grew long, as you move toward dawn, as the morning approached. And so you have eyes that can barely see. You have a lamp, a priesthood that can barely give light. The dimly flickering house of Levi is about to be extinguished. But this is also a sign of hope. Institutions, nations, people need to hit rock bottom before they see the world aright. The night is far gone here, to use Paul's words. The dawn is at hand. And we see in verse 3 that Samuel slept in the tabernacle precincts, in the courts near the holy place. This tells us something very important about this, this young man. He's a young man of the church. He's about his father's business. Notice he's sleeping. He's sleeping in Eli's place where either Eli or his sons should be stationed. Samuel is the future. He's the true son of Eli. He's the replacement for Eli's corrupt sons. There's another lesson here. It's obvious. It's lying on the face of the text, but I'll say it. There's a lot to be said in life for just showing up. Right? Samuel is just there sleeping. Right? He's just on duty. Be there. So our job, right, whether we are young or whether we are old, is really quite simple. We are to be ministering to the Lord as faithful priests. I mean, you should think of yourself this way. Your baptism is a kind of ordination, not formal ordination in the public sense, but an ordering to. Your baptism is an ordering to and equipping for you to serve as a royal priest in the house of God. You have this priestly calling. And as Samuel's example indicates, this consists primarily in attending to the public worship of God. That's where he sleeps. He was lying, the text tells us, in the house of God. Now get this. Where the ark was. It's as if the young boy knows, either intuitively or he's been taught, That the God of glory, the God of the covenant, long silent, should he choose to reveal himself, should he choose to speak, is going to speak from the ark. So to minister to the Lord is primarily to wait upon him. In public worship, but in all of life, in private as well. So again, maybe it's not new. Maybe it's not exciting, but the simple, basic meat and potato stuff of Christian piety is always the basis for further service and fruitfulness in the kingdom. Always. 
Right? As the children's verse puts it, read your Bible and pray every day and you'll grow, grow, grow. Right? That's it. That's my whole and your whole theology of Christian spirituality. That's it. There's nothing to be added to that for the most part. That's the guts of it. Now, if we think this is boring, then we have no idea right, of the strange divine sea, of the infinite and wild world, of the heights and the depths of this text, right? this speech, this word. So I ask, does the Lord know you as one who ministers or who serves or who waits upon him? This cannot be done if we're frantically running around all the time. You cannot, let me put this a different way, you cannot minister for the Lord if you do not minister to the Lord. You cannot minister for the Lord if you do not minister to the Lord. You notice on the front of our bulletin it says the Lord's service. Some of you might notice that that's kind of ambiguous. Like who's serving who? Is the Lord serving us or are we serving the Lord? And it might sound spiritual to say, well, the Lord serves on us. He he doesn't need anything from us. We don't serve him. No, it's both, right? Here, the Lord serves you. He feeds you. He nourishes you. He meets you. But you serve him. You offer back prayer and praise in your life. That's the dynamic of the Christian life. The Lord serves us, and we serve the Lord. You cannot minister for the Lord if you do not minister to the Lord. And beginning in verse 4 in the text, we have a ray of light. Pure, unexpected grace. The end of the famine. God speaks. Then the Lord called Samuel. The long period of near silence is broken. This is the turning point. It is basic to the Christian God that he speaks. We would know nothing of him had he not spoken. We're thankful that the triune God is eloquent. Right? His word speaks the creation. His word is the power which upholds the creation. His word drew near to Israel and spoke by the prophets. His word becomes flesh in Jesus Christ. And his word speaks through the apostolic foundation of the church in the scriptures. God is not, God is not silent. Now, he's not a chatterbox. You would get the impression from some moderns that God is always chatting with them. God is not a chatterbox, but he speaks. He speaks, therefore he is. The invisible God, the silent God, the God who hides his face, that God becomes audible. And when that God becomes audible, all of life is reoriented. We should not take this speech for granted. Samuel answers and he he runs to Eli and says, here I am, you called me. Even though Samuel, he doesn't yet recognize the Lord's voice, there's something very beautiful 
in his prompt and his cheerful service to broken Eli. Samuel runs to Eli. Now remember, Eli's eyes were dim. He was aged. He was overweight, we're told later. I mean, Eli must have awoken or rustled in some manner on many nights. And surely the young Samuel was accustomed to having his sleep interrupted so he could go take care of his mentor. Again, you know, prompt service, even or even especially to deeply flawed and imperfect men, people, is a sign of grace, right? Anyone can serve the delightful, right? But serving one another with all of our weaknesses and our faults and our history and our irritabilities, right? That's the call. And when we refuse to do that, it says a lot more about us than the people we're turning away from. This kind of service to flawed people is inseparable from service or ministry to the Lord. So we can turn around what I said earlier. We can flip it. You cannot minister to the Lord unless you are willing to minister for the Lord. You cannot minister to the Lord if you won't engage in ministry for his broken and flawed people particularly the ones that we might deem unworthy. This is always a test. It's an opportunity to either harden your heart a little bit or enlarge your heart, produce a sort of catholicity of heart. It's an opportunity for charity. Now, at this point in our narrative, Eli's clueless. He says, I didn't call. He tells Samuel to lie down again. You get the whole thing a second time. Just a couple things about this second encounter to note. Eli now says, my son, I did not call. For all of his faults, Eli is clearly fond of Samuel, calls him his son, and Samuel clearly reveres the aged man. And when he calls him his son, this is my second thing here, when he calls him his son, it's because His own sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are illegitimate. Samuel is now the true son of Eli, the son of Yahweh. Now, here's something important. Again, provocative, I think, and helpful. Eli has lost his biological children. He's actually under the discipline and judgment of God for losing them. But you know what? He's still mentoring, and he has a covenant son, and he's forming Samuel. If you've lost your children, you're not finished. You can have dozens of spiritual children. If you've reached a certain age in the body of Christ, and you're not mentoring young Christians in some form or another, you should ask yourself, why is that? Right? We're never finished parenting, even if we might be finished in some sense with our own children. Eli, with all of his flaws, with all of his brokenness as a father, with the very word of God against him, is mentoring the future of Israel. 
Right? We need people who come into their maturity and think, these are the decades for me to mentor and nourish and form the future of the church. So in verse 7, we're told that Samuel didn't know the Lord and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. Those two statements probably interpret each other. Right? We've already seen Samuel depicted as ministering to the Lord and growing in favor with God and men. But the word of the Lord was rare and it hadn't been revealed to him. This probably means his public calling as a prophet and judge for the nation has not been affirmed. But notice, again, the word, which is rare, is now coming forth in this corrupt time. It comes forth to Samuel from inside the tabernacle, almost surely from the ark, when it does come forth. No corruption can chain the word of God. But even in times of corruption, where does the word come from? Like it comes from precisely where you think it would come from, from the tabernacle. In our day, that means it comes from the scriptures and the holy sacraments, what we call the ordinary means of grace. That's where it's going to come from. That's where you're going to hear. That's where you're going to be renewed and reoriented. I think I've told the story here of the, the Swedish filmmaker, Ingmar Bergman. You know, he made The Seventh Seal and other famous films. There's a story where he's listening to Stravinsky, and he has this vision. And in this vision, he's running around inside a cathedral, looking at all the paintings. And he comes before a picture of Christ, right? And Bergman is haunted by the God question. And he says to the picture of Christ, speak to me, speak to me. I will not leave until you speak to me. Right? And of course, the picture doesn't speak to him. And he leaves. He makes a film shortly thereafter called The Silence, where he despairs over ever finding God. Now, what one would say to Bergman is the same thing one would say to any inquirer. It's something like this. Why don't you try the Gospel of John? Like, how about trying the place where God has promised to speak? Like, if you embrace the Scriptures, you can see God everywhere else. But if you reject the Scriptures, the reverse tends to be true. You cannot find the fingerprints of God anywhere. To the pure, he shows himself pure. To the crooked, he shows himself crooked. If you want to hear the word of God, you need to be listening where he said he would be found. Samuel sleeps in the tabernacle, and God speaks to him there. That's why we're here, right? This is why you're sitting here. I would say this is why some of you are sleeping here. But this is at least why we're gathered here. Right? We need to lie down in the pastures of the ordinary means of grace, the word, the sacraments, and prayer. From there, God will surely address your needs. So in verse 8, the Lord calls Samuel the third time. Eli finally perceives what's going on and instructs him to go lie down and says to him, look, the next time this happens, say, speak, Lord, 
your servant is listening. Again, like wise advice from the flawed old man. You know, Eli's role in this passage is striking. But notice then, notice what goes with waiting on the Lord, listening. Listening. Listening is really hard. Right? It's just really, really a difficult thing to do well. And listening for God and his word is the same way. It requires settling down, filtering out the other voices, waiting, praying. It's what folks have called an ecstatic act, listening, meaning you have to get out of yourself. It's an act where you have to part from yourself and get outside yourself. right? And too often... When it comes to scripture, we hear what we want to hear. Right? We, we have our, our existing beliefs affirmed, and the fact that the other people that don't have these beliefs are the bad guys, we have that affirmed too. Right? It's, it's too infrequent from where I stand as a minister of the gospel, as a pastor. It's too infrequent that scripture actually surprises people. Right? That it disrupts things, that it disorders things, that, there, that it creates deep, you know, tectonic shifts. It's just real, really rare for someone to come to me and say, I worked through this passage and it radically shifted my view of that. This, this almost never happens. I mean, what kind of word is it that we're engaging? It seems fairly harmless. Either that or, or we've all arrived at a views that are 98.9% correct. This is, a, this is a test, beloved, right? If the, if the Holy Scriptures do not force you to rethink stuff all the time, then they're not being heard. So in verse 10 in the text, the Lord comes and stands. That means he manifests his ark presence, the Shekinah glory. But it is still the voice, the word that is primary. When that, when that word that addresses you in Scripture, that is God standing in front of you in His presence, in His glory, speaking. And the Lord calls Samuel, Samuel. It echoes Moses' call from the burning bush. Moses was called twice, Moses, Moses. And the replies are virtually identical. Speak, Lord, your servant hears. Samuel is now called as a prophet, a new Moses, a listener of the word to lead Israel out of her darkness. That's his call. The second point is the word of God. And it's just a brief summary of the judgment on Eli's house already given in chapter 2. If you look at verse 11, this is what the Lord says to Samuel when he finally breaks his silence. Behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which the ears of everyone who hears it will tingle meaning tingle with horror. The word against Eli's house is going to come to pass, right? God confirms it, the finality of it with an oath. You know, they've defiled the sacraments, uh, the sacrifices, and there'll be no atoning by sacrifice forever for the house of Eli. It's a dreadful, brutal word. It is not a new word. It is not a new word. But it's new for Samuel. He didn't know anything about it. He's just a boy. I mean, imagine hearing this 
as your first prophetic word from God as a young person. It's a reminder, again, of what we looked at last week. Judgment begins with the house of God. With Israel, not with the nations. With us, not with the culture. And that brings me to the third point, the young prophet. Now, just imagine the situation this places Samuel in. He clearly loves Eli. Eli loves him. This is the first oracle of his prophetic ministry. And clearly, clearly it's a divine test of the young prophet's ultimate loyalties. And here we learn something else about ministry in the church during times of corruption. Eventually, eventually, faithfulness requires confrontation. Even of honored institutions, even of beloved mentors. But, but, the order is crucial. Right? Years of faithful, loyal ministry to the Lord under Eli. Right? Don't miss that. To the Lord under Eli. That warrants, that warrants speaking the word of judgment to Eli. Prophets are almost always prepared by years of menial hidden service. Jesus certainly was. In fact, I think we could go on here and say, beware of prophets who neither love nor serve the traditions and the men they criticize. The internet is full of them. Beware of prophets who neither love nor serve the institutions they criticize. Verse 15 depicts Samuel's dread. It says he lays down until the morning. He's in no hurry to communicate this word to Eli. Clearly, he's in something like shock. But he arises in the morning. He opens the doors of the Lord's house. For the word of the Lord, which had come from behind those doors, is about to be spread abroad. Remember, Eli's sons, they profaned the priesthood in front of those doors. Samuel will prove to be a faithful gatekeeper. A new era is dawning as those doors open. And the end of verse 15 tells us this plainly. Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. He has a tender heart towards Eli. There are two two extremes to be avoided when it comes to judgment. In one sense, the 20th century is a history of the church filtering out and avoiding all judgment texts because they're considered too mean or for whatever reason. And so there's a way of navigating the Christian life to avoid them all. That's an error and a serious one. The other error are the types who embrace the judgment texts with a little bit too much gusto and glee. Yeah, bring it on. Sure that we are not the ones who are in the sights of these texts. Right? Everybody loves to see justice done on somebody else. So beware of over-eager pontificating prophets. Weep more, pontificate less. Imagine if there was a rule. One tear shed for the institution or people you're criticizing for one for every word spoken. 
there would be just like a blessed hush would fall over all of Christendom. Beware also of prophets who are not terrified by the word they have received. Samuel is scared. But again, Eli, extraordinary to his credit, calls Samuel his son again. And he says in verse 17, what is it he told you? Do not hide it from me. Now, he knows this is not going to be good news. And notice what he does. He even calls down a curse on Samuel to bring the young prophet to the place of full disclosure. Wicked, flawed Eli with his house under judgment is mentoring his new son to the end. It's as if Eli says, look, I will supply you with the courage to confront me. To start your prophetic ministry in full and fearless fidelity. Tell me everything. I place you under oath before God. And finally, in verse 18, it says, Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. That's the prophetic calling. The whole truth, nothing but the truth, without respect of persons. And Eli, this could be Eli's characteristic passivity, But it's still admirable. What does Eli say when he hears the judgment confirmed on him again from his own mentor? He says, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. It's as if Eli is saying, I relinquish the priesthood. I step aside. Samuel actually communicates nothing new to Eli. But he has passed the test that all prophets must pass. The covenant word of God has to prevail over against all human, all institutional loyalties. There is, in the calling of a prophet, a kind of inhumanity, is there not? And it is at the same time the fashioning of the deepest, richest kind of humanity. Right? It involves a tearing and a rending of all that's familiar and comfortable, all the human bonds, so that God, who alone kills and makes alive, can do the work of slaying and resurrecting Israel. It's much like the calling you have as a priest baptized into Jesus Christ. What is the Christian way to transformation, to bearing the image of God? At first, it sounds almost inhumane, put to death the deeds of the flesh, deny yourself, take up your cross, crucifixion, 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 mortification, and then resurrection, present your members to God as those alive from the dead, death and resurrection, death and resurrection, putting to death, making alive, there's something very radical and ruthless about it, but it's infinitely gracious Because we do it in the light of one who was put to death for us and raised for us. So now we have this gracious method of dealing with the depths of our corruption and moving on to renewal. This is the path of human flourishing. You can't get there by mere therapeutic adjustments. You need, as Israel needed, death, resurrection, and that means permanent, perpetual renewal. So, the word of God has now ceased to be rare. None of Samuel's words fall to the ground. They all come to pass. Let me briefly summarize 
the salient points in conclusion. First, the word of the Lord, the word which has become flesh in Jesus Christ, it's important to get this, is no longer rare. It may be ignored. It may sit on your shelf. You may refuse to hear it. The word is no longer rare. God has spoken in Jesus Christ, and that word is publicly enshrined for us in Holy Scripture. It is sealed to us in the sacraments. Right? Moses cried out in, in the book of Numbers, I wish that all the Lord's people would have the Spirit so that they could all be prophets. The Spirit and the mantle, the prophetic mantle, falls in the New Testament on you, on the whole priestly people of God who have the word of God in their mouths. And this means we must be New Testament Samuels. There are no spectators in the body of Christ. And that means you have to faithfully serve and listen in the temple. We must hear the sacred scriptures afresh. The reformers used to say, sacred scripture is the voice of God. If you want the key to how the Reformation spread through Europe, I read just a couple weeks ago that John Calvin preached six sermons a week in Geneva. That's the word of God, assuming a kind of prominence. We have to tremble at this word, though. We have to let the word criticize us. It will do us no good to read the word and constantly have our own inclinations affirmed. It has to reorient us, or, or the word can become rare again because we no longer have ears to hear it. So we wait on it. It's God's provision for you in crisis, in barrenness, in corruption. Right, as Luther said, and we will sing, that word above all earthly powers, right, above all clever gimmicks, all churchy novelties, that word opens up the future for the people of God. The second point in closing here is that we must serve imperfect men and women, deeply flawed communities, with humility and with fidelity. The future is always called forth from such weak, ordinary, despised life of the church. Everything that everybody says about the church, my answer is generally, sure, yeah, that's all, that's all true. It's worse than that, actually. <laughs> that's why Jesus died for her, right? Young people say, well, the church is full of hypocrites. Well, yeah, that's why we have a confession of sins at the beginning. Of course we're full of hypocrites. What, are you kidding me? You're just scratching the surface of the problem. It's really, really bad. That's why there's a naked, broken, lacerated Savior at the center of the church's life. So get over it. right? God has shown us His mercy. We want to be cleansed by that mercy. And then we serve people who are just as broken as we are. And third, finally, we have, when called upon, after years of service, you know, we may be called upon to bear witness to the supremacy of the word and to speak it into our most tender relationships and our most cherished customs and traditions. The word, not our ideas, must govern. So the doors of the tabernacle of God are now always open. Morning has dawned in Jesus Christ. Listen then, listen, wait and listen to the word of the Lord 
And let him who has ears hear what the Spirit says to the church. Amen.